Peter Hinchins grew up writing software by himself. The act of writing code brought him great pleasure, but the isolated creative process disconnected him from the rest of the world. As Peter's life progressed, he became involved in open source communities, and he discovered a passion for human interaction. Open source software succeeds or fails on the strength of the community. One story of success is ZeroMQ, a popular open source distributed messaging system that was started by Peter Hinchins. In this episode, Peter gives his thoughts on human nature, distributed systems, and death. In his recent blog post, A Protocol for Dying, Peter discussed his own terminal diagnosis of cancer and how it has reframed his perspective on life. Peter Hinchins is the creator of Zero MQ and an open source advocate. Peter, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. I'm glad to be here. You wrote a blog post a few months ago called A Protocol for Dying, and it is as much about your life and what you enjoy as it is about death. And in that post, you explain how your relationship to other human beings has changed since you were a young man. You describe your younger self as being somewhat disconnected, somewhat lonely, perhaps autistic, but very much in love with the act of writing code. And in contrast to that, you describe the pleasures of socializing that you now enjoy later in your life. And I think many programmers can understand the tension between the isolated creative process of writing code and the joy of socializing with others. How has your appreciation for socialization evolved over time? You know, to describe it as attention is very good because we have this feeling that if we're not coding, we're wasting time somehow. And I remember my spare time was spent coding. I would, you know, go on holiday from my company, take off a, a week, and I would, I would write code for them for a week for free, and that was my greatest passion. And it, it took me a very, very long time to come to this understanding I have today that mm, this works. I mean, it works as a, as a solo pursuit, but it's, it's often very mm, sterile and ineffective in comparison to collective coding. I don't think we have a good term for this yet. Open source strives to be collective. It often isn't. Often it's driven by a few egos. And what we do in our ZeroMQ community uh, is really becoming a kind of a collective sport where there are dozens or hundreds of people working on, on parts of a project at the same time, in real time, and building something without anyone having any idea of what's actually going on. And this is something really uh, interesting. I think it's a, an emergent truth of how we innovate as a species. And I think we see this more and more now in software because our, our tools allow this. It, didn't, it wasn't possible before. So, so there's certainly the personal, perhaps emotional component to it where you have this very, uh, you know, you get this, this sense of pleasure from coding by yourself in isolation, but, uh, and then the emotional side of socialization, you get this, this joy of socializing with others that maybe comes from evolution, right. evolutionary emotional properties. And then there's also the productivity side of it. Um, you know, Certainly, you, you get this momentum when you're developing as an individual contributor, but you can get much more momentum out of the crowd as a whole if the crowd is utilized. And I think this is this is you can draw an analogy between the problems that arise in communities from centralization and also the problems 
that arise in distributed systems. Centralization is, is a core problem in distributed systems. If you have right. a single point of failure in your distributed system, it's obviously vulnerable. And if you have a coder who is leading a project and doing 80% of the work, then that's a single point of failure. If he gets hit by a bus, then there's you know you have some serious problems in maintaining the problem uh maintaining the the code base so what are the ways that we have solved issues of centralization in distributed systems and how does that compare to how we have solved these problems within communities it's a very good analogy and i i think well this is conway's law right so organizations and the software they build if they're software building organizations tend to be self-similar and we We've seen that the costs of participation used to be quite asymmetrical. So it used to be that there was a, a team had to have a server, an SVN server it was at the turn of the century, if we were lucky. And this required administration, it required disks, it required backups, it required good network connections. All these are very expensive. And then the developers would work on their client laptops and they would send code to the central repository. So centralization was a way to solve a problem by putting the cost in one place. And it works, but it only it's only better than having nothing at all. And the um, you know, people sending each other floppy disks is, is was kind of painful. And what we what we found over time is we could reduce the cost of participation and every node could become a full fledged participant. In other words, Git is uh, you know, Git comes with a server built in. You can be a Git host simply by running the Git process. Network connections are very cheap. Uh, I have a, a 50 or 100 megabits connection here in my house for, I don't know, 70 euros a, a month. I don't need backups anymore. Git does that for me. GitHub does that. And Git is decentralized. So we've solved so many of these problems that used to exclude and used to make it asymmetric. So we come to a, a playing field where anyone can participate as a, as a first-class citizen. Yeah, and how does it... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, And that's that's the truth both in how we organize as developers and how we build distributed systems. And that was one of the goals with ZeroMQ was to build this this first-class citizenship into every node. So we kind of... I mean, we still have models with clients and servers because for some problems, centralization is a, is a good solution. But it's one of... You know, it's a tapestry. Here and there we centralized, there and there we decentralized. Well, so, so I, I think there's an interesting contrast you can also draw between, you know, these types of decentralized projects and then corp- corporations. Like corporations, for example, have one or two leaders at the top, and corporations can be extremely successful organizations. You know, I think about Steve Jobs aligning Apple around this mission of creating the iPhone, and this, you know, maybe this is the only way that you can create something like the iPhone. Are there things that a centralized organization has the power to do that a decentralized one cannot do? Or have we just, as the human race, has not learned how to do this at a decentralized level yet? So I've written about these, I think, two extremes of of organizational structure. One is a pyramid, a power pyramid, and one is a living network, a living system. And the power the power pyramid is very is very common in human organization. We've had this for a long time. It's how we build our armies and our empires and our modern corporations. It's it can be very effective in concentrating resources and power and aiming people at a certain goal. It's very inflexible. Uh, look at Apple trying to compete now in China, and they have no clue. I mean, look at Apple trying to compete in general, and they have no clue. You know, they, they they've lost it completely. So, it's very good at executing a specific strategy. And it, I don't know how long it took Steve Jobs to figure out what he wanted to make. It took, it took him some time. He came along 
was able to shift Apple into this structure, which was very loyal and very organized towards pulling money from the markets and giving it to shareholders and, and the owners of Apple. And as soon as there's a real challenge in the market, it breaks down. So over time, you'll see these structures building up, extracting massive amounts of profit. And they're, they're, they're quite predatory models. These are not you know, nice organizations. They're very brutal about putting their suppliers in their place and their workforce indeed. Whereas the alternative, a living system, and you know, you live in a city, a city is a collection of, of economies all doing their thing. They last for a very long time. They can be very social to live in and very profitable for everybody, not just for a few people. Yeah, speaking of Apple, you wrote about that recently. So you wrote about the fact that one potential Apple competitor in China is Xiaomi, which is a smartphone company. And Xiaomi is able to leverage the Chinese model of open sourcing hardware, which I think is interesting because like 10 or 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago, hardware open sourcing would be almost unfathomable. So it's it's kind of interesting because like to what degree can we open source the world to what degree can we work as a hive mind like what do you think is the what is the furthest that humanity can take this it's about sharing knowledge right so open source hardware isn't about being obsessive obsessive about the, the source code for your binary blobs it's about if i make a smartphone um, can my competitor take it and improve it and sell his improved version and how long does that take and what are the rules for remixing his improved version back into my next generation product and the Chinese, at least in some parts of their industry, seem to have cracked that problem very effectively, which gives them cycles of innovation, which are now down to, I think, a few days in some cases. It's insane. Samsung, for example, have this, and I worked with Samsung for a while. I know how they work internally. They're like a, a multiple collection of, of apples. They have like multiple divisions fighting each other brutally to try and get out the next hot product. And they will have three companies, three independent or fairly competitive divisions fighting over the next robot vacuum cleaner or it was the next smartphone and which one will succeed and the other two get killed different model again of innovation and not very much knowledge sharing and that it was just trial and error but they bring out a new version a new a new feature on something and something interesting and it gets copied in in a week or two weeks and well copied not just you know not, not just not just a cosmetic imitation it gets implemented properly yeah, and you talk about this idea of having competition within an organization between two different products. Uh, I, I think one interesting example of this recently, I read this recently, that Larry Page is funding two different flying car companies right now, and right. they have competing visions, which is so interesting because he's bringing competition even to the earliest stages of this you know, super secretive product he's building. And, you know, you've talked about this with the Zero MQ community about how competition has kind of been fostered without animosity. How do you build a community that that has that competitive element but does not have th- that animosity? Well, again, it comes down to knowledge sharing and the right to remix. If it's all top secret, then the employees belong to one or the other company. And when they lose, they lose their jobs. In uh, open source projects, uh, Zero MQ projects, for example, you have several teams working on the same problem, but they will move between projects quite happily. They will reuse each other's work very happily. So what emerges is a best of a mix, often with things taken from one and moved in the other. And when old code dies, everyone is very happy. It's much easier and more fun to work on successful code that people are using than to maintain old code that nobody really wants but has no choice over. So the secret is knowledge mixing and and the ability to move and destroy old structure very quickly if it's not profitable anymore 
and the cost of failure. How big is the cost of failure? If you have three competing teams and the cost of failure is people losing their jobs and their homes, that's quite dramatic. If the cost of failure is changing of a brand name and people moving offices and st- you know staying on the same same specialization, whatever, that's okay. Right. So, like Xiaomi has lots and lots of competitors, but it's also using them as its as its research divisions and. It works very well, and there's not really much animosity. I mean, I'm, I'm very far from China. I can't really see that there is animosity. Somebody will have to find out what's really going on. Yeah, so the and the programming world has become increasingly decentralized over time. Like, you've seen corporations adopt open source in all kinds of ways. Like, you're talking with Xiaomi, maybe, you know, is like kind of an extreme example of that. And I think this is a leading indicator for how society will develop as a whole. How do you anticipate this decentralization process percolating out beyond the software community and into politics and finance and the everyday world? So, yeah, it's a good question. I think the sharing of knowledge is an old human thing. We've always done that. We've always done best when we were able to share best. You know, the wealthiest cities were the ones based on trade and commerce, not based on on raw power and secrecy. Um, and it's getting easier and easier to share knowledge, obviously. It's getting harder and harder to hoard knowledge. And there's also a question of density, population density. How many minds are able to look at a problem at one moment? And that density defines how effective the knowledge sharing is. So we're able to now apply, you know, take a question of legal something bizarre in the law, and you can get 10,000 people looking at this who know what they're talking about. That was impossible before. So there becomes real competition for the old, you know, the kind of the closed, we own the specialists, we can define a specialization because we own the lawyers, we own this, the politicians, whatever, to a more open system where there's real competition. There will always be a tension between power centralization and decentralization. I think that's inevitable. I think that's part of the the human arms race. I want to own this or we will do this together. There's a real fight there. And that fight is also, I think, really essential to how we progress as a species. So when you look at the models from the cryptocurrency community, like the blockchain, Bitcoin, we have right. Ethereum now with the decentralized autonomous organization, which is this this thing that they're trying to do, where you can spin up these these corporations basically that are decentralized and they have a decentralized um, uh, compensation structure. And is is do you think this is going to be successful? This decentralized organization format from the the cryptocurrency community. I don't know if it's successful in the in the long term in terms of their actual goals, but in terms of of raising the question, it's been successful already. The very concept of a decentralized investment fund is a, is a strange thing. And I think it's an amazing that we've gotten here already and that people are, you know, really investing in this. I hope that if it fails, it doesn't actually, you know, hurt too many people. But the, um, the long-term success comes from exploring these things, whether, we, whether they're successful individually or not. Are, are there elements of? I mean, you, you're heavily uh, involved in the distributed systems community. So, are there elements when you look at the blockchain and Ethereum and Bitcoin? Are there elements of what they are doing with distributed systems that can be that that you look at the, and you're like, oh, these can be reapplied to 
things that are not financially related? Like, uh, are there are there structures, or or is this more of the financial structure adopting things in the distributed systems world that have already existed? Well, I'm not really an expert in this, so take this with a pinch of salt. <laughs> sure, I've I've seen a few I've seen a few different aspects of this. There are, for example, ways to use um, blockchains for contracts, which are basically, you know, signed agreements um, between parties and doesn't require doesn't require a, a third party to be holding these or to be publishing them or something. Um, so I think the, I mean, technically, the bitchain, the, the, the sorry, the Bitcoin community and the the general uh, cryptocurrency community is using ZeroMQ in a very small scale here and there. Hmm. It's not a decentralized uh, product in the sense of sending each other messages at high speed on the ZeroMQ model at all. Um, but in terms of giving everybody the ability to be a first-class player, it has very much the same vision. You know, it's removing the ability for anyone to say, I own this system. So that's that's completely, it's even much more aggressive than ZeroMQ, I would say, in many ways, in terms of decentralization. But again, I don't really know much about this. I'm just waffling at this point. Absolutely. So, But you have written books about software communities. You've also written books about distributed systems. And my sense is that the field of distributed systems research evolves so quickly. And, you know, I guess the Bitcoin, all the developments within there are, are examples of that. You know, it's like this distributed systems community has evolved so quickly and then it kind of compounds into this new product that is the Bitcoin and the blockchain community. So when you were heavily involved working with Zero MQ, when you were just in, in, you know, deep in the weeds, when it was your main focus, did you feel a need to keep up with the academic research of distributed systems, or did you just kind no. of naturally not at all? No, not at all. Um, so first of all, I don't think so. I don't think that things evolve that quickly. I think what hmm. we see is a lot of movement, a lot of, you know, I'll use the model. I do use this a few times, but the ants an ant nest and we innovate like ants find food so ants move a lot if you look at the actual ant legs in an ant colony moving you'll see you'll see lots of movement and if you try to measure the ant colony's progress by the you know the number of steps that its individual ants all take together it's overwhelming it's a huge amount of movement you're like wow this colony is really really innovating but maybe it's not finding any food so there's you got i think you have to have a distinction in your mind between movement and accuracy so there's been, a, there's been this big fight in our community over those two things and getting away from movement and getting towards accuracy. And accuracy means solving problems which are actually there, which people actually care about now, which are actually worth solving in terms of money for somebody. And going away from vision-driven movement where you know I believe there are problems in the future which people will, if they listen to me hard enough, make money from solving. We find that to be kind of, well, pretentious, first of all, but also often very, very wrong. Okay, so like, for example, in ZeroMQ, there was this big this big idea that we should put ZeroMQ into the Linux kernel, right? That's someone who's smoked something and has come up with this idea. <laughs> and it's abs- it, it makes great sense if you don't actually use ZeroMQ at all. Right? Anyone using ZeroMQ sees this and says, what is this? You know, why are you even spending time on this? We have other issues which are really, really pressing and which we really would actually like to solve. 
So um, we really moved focus away from uh, ideology towards finding ways to find real problems in the field and solving them as fast as we can and checking those solutions against the problem and filtering out bad problems and bad solutions. So what we get is actually a, a good functional result. Now, the problem with academia, again, and I'm sorry, that's my opinion, academics don't actually use what they make. They're not actually trying to make money from their work. They're disconnected from the market and they're doing research which may be very accurate in certain senses, may be very useful at a certain point in time, but is it actually what we need today? I, I don't know often. So we, we don't follow academia. We, we follow our users and we try to get them integrated into our thinking process tightly so that they're actually doing the, the research for us in real time. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really measured response. One thing that I, I do think is interesting is like the the founding of the distributed systems world did kind of come out of academia, but uh, I mean Leslie Lamport, I think he you know he only was able to write the Paxos paper I think because he was trying to solve these problems for himself. He only came to these to these realizations about these things that you need out of Paxos from working with these working with these things. Uh, boots on the ground. Um, right. I'm going to be. I'm going to be a really a, a thug here, and and point out that we don't. I mean, I've not seen anyone actually use Paxos in, in in real applications. It's too slow and too clumsy and too complex, and no one can really understand it. And it doesn't actually. You don't actually need that level of of reliability. Turns mm. out, in experience, in practice, um, we have clustering algorithms that work quite nicely, which are much simpler, and that's what people actually use. So I, there's a disconnect there, right? So how how far does that disconnect go? Because I, you know, I my extent of understanding distributed systems is mostly like taking a class in college. So maybe I have a completely biased understanding of, you know, I, my understanding is just like Leslie Import kind of di- articulated the things that we need to be talking about mm. in in this field. Um, was was it actually more of a case of like a lot of people were talking about these things and? I don't know. Do you, so, are, you, are you an expert right. on this history? So the history that I've seen, and this is what we've based our our journey on, is the pragmatic problem of people with a lot of computers and having to connect these in high-performance networks and throwing money at the problem until they solved it. And it took them a lot of money. And I'm talking about financial institutions, banks and trading trading banks, investment banks. In the late 90s and 2000s, they acquired other banks and they began doing automatic trading or at least connecting thousands of traders on their, on their Windows Excel PCs to, to data feeds. And this was a really, really hard set of problems to solve at the time. It was an unknown thing. And it would crash for the most bizarre reasons, like you'd have some trader on his Windows, app, Windows machine. He'd go into a console by mistake and he would draw a square and go for lunch and it would block that machine. <laughs> because in the old days when you when you did a copy-paste, you did a selection box on Windows 95, it just, the machine just stopped 100% CPU. And so it would stop receiving data and the server would back up and the server would crash and so it'd be 5,000 traders without anything going on. So how do you not, you know, how do you not crash when one person has a, you know, a frozen PC? Well, the answer is quite obvious once you've gone through the, th- the pain and you've figured it out, you throw away his data. He, he's not there, he loses his data, end of discussion. So the finance industry, the stock markets, the banks, the big banks, spent billions on solving these problems and going through generations of, of really, really good engineers who had to figure out ways. And 
most of what they did was was rubbish, like it usually is. It was expensive and it wasn't very efficient. And just over time, they got better and better and better. We got better and better at that as an industry. And so ZeroMQ, we really took that because we worked for JP Morgan Chase and the Dow Jones. The Dow Jones ran on, on, on my software for, for years, industrial average. And we took what we had learned there and we made it simpler. And what we discovered was that the, the biggest problem that we had to solve in ZeroMQ was not performance and it wasn't portability. I mean, these are technical problems which we can solve. But the really, really big challenge then became simplicity. And it was how do you make this technology available to ordinary people, ordinary developers who don't have the background and the time to learn, you know, to make this their specialty. They're building their software and they want to make it distributed, but they're not distributed systems engineers. So we were then fighting complexity for years. And that's what we've been really good at in ZeroMQ, making it simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler. So I want to talk some about your your post a protocol for dying and just mm. your your general condition right now. So, uh, so for those who don't know, you have a terminal diagnosis of cancer, uh, cholangiocarcinoma, and so I'm I'm kind of curious about your process of 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 understanding that diagnosis because you're not a biologist by trading but you're a scientist and i think you know many of the people who listen to the show and and you know many computer scientists in general they're just they're curious about everything so as a scientist you you must be interested in the literature about your condition cholangiocarcinoma and and i i know that with med- medical conditions you know, these things can be like a rabbit hole of of information and like to what extent have you tried to educate yourself about the mechanics of cancer to what degree have you have you dove down the rabbit hole to try to understand what is going on in your body to be honest jeff not very far i mean just far enough to figure out what i actually had and what my what my prognosis was and then then i stopped because to be honest, honestly, it's terrifying. If you actually start reading about, especially bile duct cancer, which I have, cholangiocarcinoma, and it, it's terrifying cancer. And it's like, okay, you have this, you die. And like, you don't really want to read this over and over again. And the what do I find interesting was that it's a very rare cancer. So I was interested by, you know, how do I get this? And, you know, what happened to me? I don't have any history in my family. I don't have any of the normal precursors to bile duct cancer. It's a very bizarre cancer, especially in Europe and America. So I found out that it comes from, most likely from a liver fluke, and it's a, it's a poor person's disease in Southeast Asia, and it's almost it's a, a forgotten disease. Um, I think there's waves of cheap sushi coming into America and Europe, which will kill many people. So I think I'm, I'm kind of at the forefront of this, hey, setting of fashion here. But it's a really nasty cancer, so the you know reading about it and it's just it's just not fun. <laughs> and I think that it's enough to understand you know do I you know what you know I'm going to I'm going to flip a coin here. Do I live or do I die at this point? Do I have six months or do I have not six months? And then it's enough. So, what has it changed how you think about just like long tail risks of of humans because like you know it's like this totally unanticipated condition that you got you know your your best guess is that it resulted it resulted from some bad sushi that you ate essentially you ended up getting cancer from some bad sushi that you ate yeah and you know this is like 
crazy tail risk weirdness. But I, you know, I think this is like not a discussion that happens as often in everyday society as it could. Like, there are so many long tail ways that you can end up contracting an illness, or I mean, you think about like. Um, uh, Lyme disease or something. You know, these people get right. Lyme disease, and it's just like this chronic thing that ends up, you know, lasting for super long, and it's like really hard to diagnose, really hard to detect, really hard to treat, and you know, especially like working in computer science, which is like this human manufactured field where the problems like are pretty easy to define. Even when you have you know Byzantine failures in distributed systems, you can kind of say, okay, these are just these are distributed systems problems. We can kind of enumerate the, the how these are going to happen, but in biology, it is this crazy black box thing compared to computer science. So how how have you reckoned with that? How has has it changed how you think about the world or had you kind of already come to this conclusion about biology and the black boxiness and the tail risk before you actually got cancer? So I actually got the cancer 5 years ago, 2010, 2011 and was operated and survived that and that was very bizarre. Even the decision, you know, will be operate on you was like, you will live or you will die. It was a very um, complicated operation that they did, a Whipple procedure, they call it. So once they had operated on me and I was able to get through that, I'm like, okay, I'm alive. This is, this is, this is, in, this is intense. This is un, was unexpected. I thought I was going to die, and I didn't. And it took me about a year just to settle down from that feeling. And I was convinced I was going to get sick again at some point, so I was trying to plan my life in terms of finish my projects, get my, well, earn money, pay off my debts, write some books, stop being so, you know, stop not working for anybody if I didn't really want that, want it to happen, being much more short-term about things, being much more a family person, looking after my kids much more, which was, which was great. And that was really a good realignment, I think, the notion of living on borrowed time as a way to improve the quality of the things I did in my life. Uh, you know, every patch is your last patch. I believe this was a... Somebody was... I, I read a story about somebody who was dying with cancer and he had this this speech he would give to many people about make this everything you do your last your last thing. Make it count. And that was a nice philosophy to live with. Um, and then this year I got sick again and it came back metastasis and it's, it's worse because they can't operate uh, and it's just the same. It's a very aggressive cancer. Now we're doing chemo and the chemo is a very brutal chemo. It takes me about a week to recover from it and it's every two weeks so I have like one week off one week on I'm just now today like getting back I should be coughing and vomiting but I'm able to speak for a while why is it that as humans we need to have this experience where we come face to face with death in order to to gain this this fire in our belly to to really like work as hard as we can or to you know write the books that we've always wanted to write or have the relationship with our family that we've always wanted to to have it seems like you know we as humans we witness death throughout our life we see our parents yeah. die or we see friends die or whatever but it never hits us as close to home as to when we personally have a near death experience why is it that we need to actually experience it to get that imperative it's biology, Jeff. This is just evolution's made us like that. <laughs> That's just a stupid answer. I don't know. I haven't. <laughs> hmm. I have no clue. I mean, I don't think everybody reacts like that. I know people who had a diagnosis of cancer who just get get very depressed and very unhappy, and they just fold up and collapse basically. 
So I think that's an individual thing. I think that some people thrive on, on danger. I don't like danger. But some people need like constant danger just to feel alive. And other people don't like that at all. And if they get threatened, they collapse. And other people are in the middle and they will, they will you know, some, some threat will make them run faster or run in better directions. I don't know. It woke me up, that's for sure. I mean, it woke me up and told me, you know, to fix things in my life to a certain extent. Um, so I had no problem accepting it this time around. I was like, okay, I know what's coming. I, I understand this. I've already accepted death before. I, I can go there again. And it wasn't hard to talk about it and to express that. But um, I have to say, actually, the chemo was kind of working. So I have to be kind of slightly optimistic now that, bizarrely enough, and this is this was very experimental chemo because I have chemo for a completely different cancer that just tried on me. Someone somewhere has been trying this, and it seems to be working. So I may have longer to live than I had thought when I wrote my blog post about dying. Yay. Well, I mean, that's great. Um, And it's it's interesting because, like, it's so different than computer science. And maybe, you know, you you haven't thought about this or you're not interested in talking about this. But I, I think that in computer science, we have the luxury of being able to be very rigorous about how we test our systems. We can usually get a very large data set and we can, it's a clean data set. We can separate variables from each other in a convincing way. But my impression is that in biology, there are so many moving parts, especially when you're talking about chemotherapy, you just don't have anywhere close to the same degree of certainty about cause and effect as you can find Uh in computer science. And certainly not for individual cases. And this is an interesting thing about very large systems is that you can't actually predict you know, what happens at any one point. You can measure it for sure. You can see what's happening, but you can't predict it. You've lost control. Um, there's that level of complexity. So, you know, the chemotherapy works for a certain percentage. Okay. Are, are you going to be in that percentage? You have no clue. How many months do you have? You have no clue. Can they tell you what your prognosis is? Actually, they can't. All they can do is measure it on a, you know, on a monthly basis and see, or a weekly basis and see, well, you're, you know, you're getting better or you're not getting better. Um, for some cancers, they, they have such a large amount of data that they, they can pretty much know, okay, this cancer, we can operate and it can be gone. But even then, there's always all kind of stuff that happens. And that's, I think that's part of being a doctor is that you accept this, that you don't really have any, any real control over these things. You do your best. Um, do, do you have a sense of like is like the big data or sensors or uh, Internet of Things? Is this going to 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 end up changing the like convincingly changing cancer treatments and uh, or or is the the N of one of the human the human interacting with a specific medicine? Is this? Do you think this is unfathomably complex? What is your sense of that? I mean, science uses big data as far as it can, and biologists are using big data. And I, I don't think there's any way that mm, to second-guess this. I, I, don't, I don't like... People do this all the time. They say, oh, have you tried this special diet? Or you should think about this and that. And It's like, why would you second-guess modern medicine? You know, this is the result of thousands of years of work by people who have done really, really everything humanly possible to collect knowledge and to throw away bad ideas and keep good ideas and keep doing this and it's on a global scale and it will get better and better and um, the only sad thing is that medicine is, is, is slow to use new technology, it has to be quite cautious about that so research is still slow and they don't share knowledge as much as they could and they're not using 
systems as much as they could, but they do catch up eventually. Um, yeah. So certainly they catch up eventually, and the world of medicine do, it does learn from computer science yes. over time. Do you do you see anything in the medical community when you see all these, you know, see the interaction between doctors and nurses and stuff? Do you see anything that the that computer scientists could learn from the medical community in the way that the medical teams operate together? Yeah, good question there. I, I don't I don't know. I, Maybe the notion that you don't really have control and that you're doing is is applying procedures and and measuring results and you know I, I'm not sure I'll mm. have to think about that one for a while. Hmm. Interesting. So I mean, when when you wrote a protocol for dying, your post got a lot of attention, and as you yeah. wrote on your blog, you you said, "Of course, I love the attention." Uh, and you said, for years, I have worked to promote myself as a product. And I'm not sure whether this quote was serious or a joke, like talking about it, you're promoting yourself as a product. But I do think it's an interesting point of discussion. I mean, certainly as a podcaster, you know, I'm building a, I try to build a personal brand. I think, I think a lot of, I think there's more value in that than people maybe give the idea credit for. Do you, do you think that software developers should try harder to build up their personal brand? I mean, if it fits their, you know, their vision of, of, of things. I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to be a conference speaker and I wanted to be able to charge extortionate amounts of money for being really, really famous, I think. Not even <laughs> being particularly good because many people are very good and smart. But I wanted to be able to live an independent existence. And for me, that was like, okay, I've tried many different ways of earning my living. And I want to try this, you know, this egocentric, narcissistic which is not really me. I, I'm not really a, a person that likes to shout about themselves, but this was my decision a few years ago. One of these life-changing you know, life things. I'm going to become a conference speaker. I'm going to learn to be good at this, travel around and be comfortable presenting myself as my product and write, 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 write. Um, and if you do that, I and mean, if you decide to be a blogger and to, to have a name and then you promote your name, then that becomes your your product, it becomes what you're selling, that image of who you are and what you talk about and your ability to think about certain things and talk about certain things. It, you know, many people will attack that, which is interesting. Um, like, who are you to talk about this subject? And there'll be often very, very negative reactions to anyone who claims to be different, possibly. But that's part of being, part of being a, a, one, a wannabe celebrity, I think. Hmm. So what what drives you to want to, to to want to be a speaker? I mean, what what drove you to to get yourself there to that position where you could evangelize? Well, Was it yeah. did you did you just have such a strong set of ideas that you really wanted to get out there, and you felt that evangelism was the only way that you would get them out there? Well, I've always I've always been I've always been very um, I've always coached people and had been very good at synthesizing complex things into simple models, which were good. You know, which were usable and reusable and, and, and teachable. I've always done that. Um, but I wanted to work from home and I wanted to spend time with my children and I wanted to be able to not be in an office with people nine to five. And that meant that meant having something else than than a you know my business as the first class object or me in a team somewhere. It meant me being individually recognizable. Uh, that kind of worked. That kind of worked. 
Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's it's, inter- it's interesting to me because like I you know I personally I love computer science, I love software engineering, but I kind of moved quickly beyond the stage where I was like oh, I want to be a programmer. Uh, you know, I, I like talking to people. That's how I. That's kind of why I ended up doing this podcast. So I mean, is there anything? I mean, do you? How did you overcome? Well, I guess you you stopped. Did you stop programming for Zero MQ at, at a certain point? And you, I think you moved into more of like kind of a, a, a management, more of a governmental role, right? Like, how did you how did you make that shift from being a software developer into more of a, a diplomat or an arbitrator? And also, I didn't really stop programming until until I got sick. If you look at, I used to keep my GitHub chart up to date, and it was like it's completely full until until March this year. Um, so I worked a lot on the ZMQ core library. I worked a lot on the C binding CZMQ and on other projects around that. And that's always been very important as, because I love programming, first of all, I, I can't imagine, well, I couldn't imagine today I've kind of stopped programming, but I couldn't imagine being part of the community and not expressing myself through code, which is how we communicate. I've tried, we've been very good at not communicating through discussions put it like that. We'd communicate through patches and we have minimal discussion on patches. It sounds weird, but it actually works very well. So to be part of this community, the only thing I can really do is come along with ideas in the form of new projects, with tools that maybe people can find useful and to encourage others to invest in those projects and try and build them up if they're useful and kill them if they're not. Um, and then the, the, the managerial part of that has been writing sets of guidelines that we use, so our contracts for collaboration, which we use, and now and then coaching people on that and, and running running workshops now and then, hackathons. But it's it doesn't require much management. The whole point of this organization was it's decentralized and runs itself for 99%. It didn't used to be like that all the time, but it's gotten to that point where it's extremely self-sufficient. Hmm. Right. When you think about the the community dynamics of the zero MQ community. I mean, the, the expertise that you have in community dynamics, you know, you've, you found, you found this love of talking to communities and managing communities. I think this can be exemplified by the fact that the zero MQ community really does not have arguments and flame wars, which you, you see in, in some other right. community communities. Like there, there are some other open source projects that have had more acrimony, more problematic situations. I think of like the Linux community perhaps, or the Node.js community, which, you know, Node.js was forked at some point, and right. then, you know, had to be re- diplomatically organized back together. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything against these, these technologies or these communities, but do you think it like, is there, is there something about the nature of these technologies that results in the arguments of the communities, or is it the way that the communities themselves happen to be structured? It's the structure of the communities. And we used to have fights in ZeroMQ, and we had a fork of ZeroMQ, Crossroads, in 2010, 2011, which itself was forked again. Um, and the the mechanisms seem quite clear. You have this, you have this inherent conflict between... Uh, let me be nice about this, the visionaries and the users. And you occasionally have visionaries who are also users. They're kind of rare. Generally, you you have the visionaries who have this idea of making something and they're very aggressive about it. They may use it themselves in their own private work, but they other people are second class in that process. The Other people's opinions and needs come in later. 
and they spend a lot of their time trying to sell their ideas to people. I mean, look at something like System D and you'll see this fight very, very clearly. The, the, the problem they're solving is a valid problem. The way they're solving it is very aggressive and it's very exclusive and it's very, um, very traumatic to users who are forced to accept this without any choice. They really, it's rammed down their throats by, by brute force. We used to have that in ZeroMQ, and my job was to mediate between the visionary visionaries, one or two of them, and the users, and try to make stuff that was actually stable and reliable. And I could I could keep this going for a few years, and then it, it stopped working because the visionaries decided to take over my job of packaging. At that point, I kicked them out and said they were no longer welcome. And I moved very consciously at that point the community towards a much more collaborative model where there were no more visionaries. Anyone can be a visionary, but it's got to be on a small scale. And it's got to be harmless to other people. And I was able to, through trial and error, so these were things that we had observed in other projects, and we had collected this knowledge of how to do this, that there are ways of getting a group of people to work together, which will remove all of the emotional discussion and focus on actually moving forward. And the same people with a different process will fight and argue. It's very simple, yeah. I go to a conference room and I will say, okay, before we start, we've got to agree on an editor. Hands up who uses Kate. Hands up who uses Vim. Hands up who uses Emacs. And you'll see people starting to look confused. And This is, of course, an extreme example, but you won't move forward if you've got to get agreement on such bizarre things, right? No, no, it's totally fine. I was going to ask you, is there any place for emotion? Like, uh, is there... Are there types of things where people have an emotional response to that have value, like where the emotion... Yes, yes. Definitely good emotions, like being happy that someone's merged your pull request and feeling welcome in the group and feeling satisfied that someone's using your work and feeling confirmed that your your change was was looked at seriously and sometimes being annoyed that your change was reverted. And Okay, these are all valid emotions. But being frustrated that someone is not merging your pull request because you've used tabs instead of spaces, that's not a good emotion. Are there any books that you? What are the ideas that you? If you had, if you had time to write like another another book or another two or three books, like what are the books that you would write? The last book I wrote is one called Social Architecture, um, which was a kind of a summary of different blog articles and sections from other books, which were discussing how to build online communities. And that's that's really like the core this core thesis of how do people work together without being tribalistic and without being confrontational and how do you move an army of people towards progress without having to get agreement up front what they're doing um it's based mo- it's based almost all on, on real research i've been doing this now for about 10 10 years with communities of different kinds and seeing what worked and what didn't what didn't work do, do the same things that apply to open source communities do they generally apply to forums and, and stuff because like you see these like forums that come up and then they hit they seem to hit this critical mass and then they break like there's this level of intimacy early on in a community I find that the yeah. intimacy is oftentimes what is keeping people there so it is like this perverse thing where if you can't scale that feeling of intimacy then you can't scale the community you're speaking about reddit right 
uh, I was actually speaking about uh, I was thinking about a poker forum I used to be a part of okay. where it was interesting because like people would uh, people early on in the days when it was just like 200 or 300 people people would very eagerly share knowledge and strategy and then over time people realized that these you know when they shared a strategy it would uh, they would find themselves facing down an opponent who had that strategy so people stopped sharing knowledge and the entire community just broke down yeah and i think we still have a lot of research to do on how to build um that kind of community it's like someone was criticizing i mean we all use twitter and someone was criticizing twitter and explaining it and it's a really they, they hit on a really good point is that you basically can't you can't remove strangers from the conversation and the thing is you don't you don't communities don't benefit from giving everyone the right to speak all the time on any subject like we don't do that in Zoom. We don't say anyone can talk about anything. Like if you come into a discussion where you have no merit, where you have no basis, and start talking about it, you'll be you'll be told to go away, politely but firmly. If you're trying to discuss, you know, the rules or regulation of a project, and you have never contributed to the project, people will tell you, you know, who are you? What's your standing here? So the notion of some kind of a, an entry cost and some not 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 a big one, but some kind of a filtering over time to separate the, well, the passing trolls and people who just really want to argue. And there are those kind of people. They can really destroy communities very, very, very quickly if there aren't filters. And I think that we're still not very good at that um, in in public forums. I think we still have a lot to learn there. Hmm. So I, I want to begin to, to close off, and I want to talk a little bit more about death, which you wrote about in A Protocol for Dying and just got so much attention. I know you're thinking a lot about death. So I'm, I'm just, have you thought about what happens after you die? Have you thought about the nature of reality much or is this just like not at all a concern to you? I think it just continues, you know, without you, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you die and you die. And people, people throw out most of your stuff and the rest they argue over if you're lucky. And, and that's it, right? So you I, think I, it, it's just yeah. like a server being shut off? Well, I, I made this analogy to my children about, you know, my, my, my youngest son who's five asked me, you know, why, why I had to die. <clears throat> and he asked me this several times. It was a sincere question. And I explained finally to my two boys that it's, you know, you, you, you make houses out of Lego and the houses have a real existence and they're real. They're real and they're tangible. And you believe in them and they have, they have life. And then you break the houses up and put them back in the box. <clears throat> the house is dead and people are like that I and mean, we're not we're not really that special we're not really that precious we think we are that's interesting about us biology gives us this talent to think that we're special but we're not really special we know that and we all die and that's just part of it so I don't see it as a as a you know anything important I think it's it's how you live which is important and the the thing I really liked about uh, huh, how do I put this? The thing I really appreciated about getting sick and having the time to frame this properly was I was able to involve lots of people in the process of thinking about this and going through. So it, when I die, it will be the end of a process, not the beginning of a process. Right? That's my goal. I don't want to die and then leave all this chaos and stress and worry and trauma. I want to die and everyone's like, okay, no. Thank God he's gone finally, and it's all cleaned up, and we've had our party, and we, you know, it's all everyone said goodbye. We've bought his books, and it's fantastic. I think that's much more fun and much healthier. 
Yeah, it's, it almost sounds like, I mean, that is the protocol that you're writing right. about. It's like, what is the way that you have an orderly cleanup step? You know, you don't yeah. have like dangling pointers. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, so have you thought about any any of this? So, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm unusual here, but I, I find myself thinking a lot about like the nature of reality. Like, are we living in a simulation, the simulation hypothesis stuff? It sounds like this is just is not something that you're concerned with at all. You don't think about it at all. Is that is that accurate? I think we all think at a certain point of our lives, we all at some point wonder, you know, are aliens watching us and are we part of some <laughs> massive game? I think it's just, I had that when I was 12, 13. I was convinced that this was all a setup. This couldn't possibly be real. This is like too weird. Like This life is just too alien. It's got to be someone's, it's a huge, massive joke, right? And then I realized it's not a joke. It's actually real. And if there are aliens, they really don't care. They're not watching us. And they're not, if it's a simulation, we're not equipped to tell the difference. And so asking is it a simulation is a complete waste of time. And then you're like, okay, okay. There are other questions which you can ask which are also a waste of time. Like, <laughs> you know, and then you begin, I go better at not asking questions that were a waste of time because you don't go anywhere with them. I mean, really, there's really no, there's no profit in, in asking you know, what is the, you know, what happens when the universe ends? It's like, who cares? We're not going to be there. It's not relevant. You know, get back to things which are actually fun and relevant. It's like, how much beer do I have left? How cold is the fridge? <laughs> my, my, my friend said he's going to bring some barbecued goat meat across. I'm really waiting for this goat meat. And this is really important and fun. Um, and tangible. And tangible. And I, I think that there's, I think it's normal at a certain point in your life to have this kind of space in your head that's looking for bizarre questions. But I, I think you have to grow out of that. And <laughs> Certainly, no. I think I think you're right. Um, it's just like what is to, what happens if you, you know, I, I get this fear of like being too, you know, latching too much onto the local maxima of what is feasible, what is realistic. Yeah. Like, should I just focus on how I get my goat meat for the rest of the day? If I do that, I know I'm going to be satisfied. I know I'm going to have a tangibly happy day. But what if that is like the local maxima of what is achievable? Like, how do I avoid getting trapped into that local maxima addiction? Well, tomorrow you wake up and there's no goat meat. You do something different. Um, I don't think this is, again, this is, I don't think something that we have to be too worried about. And we've been very successful as a, as a social species. We've done this. Our biology has equipped us to jump around. And there are how many billions of us out there, you know, trying different things in different parts of the world. It's very unlikely that we're all going to get trapped in the same local maxima pretty much impossible and that means that it just requires one person to have one idea that spreads and boof you're all off we're all off on different tangent again and and we do this as a species we're very good at moving forwards and solving big complex problems just by thinking about them slowly together little by little ant colonies and i think as ant colonies i think the ants are happy i think the ants are completely okay with their situation they know that they're not really that important they do their best and they they die happy with some sugar water so, so this, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great response. So, since since you you have written a protocol for dying, you've talked to a lot of people about it. It's garnered a lot of attention. So, I imagine some of the ideas that you've discussed in that post have evolved. So, just just to to begin to close off, like, what are the the things that have evolved? Is there are there any addendums to the protocol for dying that you wrote? 
I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the situation changes. So I wrote that when I was in a particular situation. I was, I had, I was, I had lung cancer, and I still do, and I had pneumonia, which has gone away now. And I was really sick, and I was like, okay, I want to express this state of being violently ill and how it makes me feel when people come to visit, which was mostly good, honestly. When people visit and come there and stay beside me, it was actually like, oh, thank God, I'm not alone with this miserable, miserable situation. When things get better and when you're able to run around and do stuff, then it's different. You don't want to tell everyone, hey, I'm sick, I'm sick, you know, come and visit me. It's like, <laughs> no, you're not sick. You can, you, can, you can go and ride on your bike and you, can, you, don't, you don't have to sleep for half an hour afterwards. You, know, you don't have to sleep for two days. It's, you're, you're a lot better than you were. So it's a contextual thing. And I think that post, that post was, was perfect for the moment. I think it got a lot of attention because of its, its rawness. It was very raw. I didn't really think it out very carefully. Um, I wouldn't write that today at all. I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't be able to write that again. Mm. I would write something different. Um, okay, so final question. What suggestions do you have for software engineers listening to this for how they should manage their software projects in the future and how they should manage their lives? Good question. So software projects, please make open source. Don't make closed source. I know that people will pay you to make closed source. They will pay you. They will bribe you. They will convince you that there's more money and profit. But you won't see that money and profit. It's going to go to somebody else almost all the time. And as soon as you turn your back, that stuff's going to go in the garbage bin. And you know it. And your life work's going to be thrown away. And you will come. I'm 53. I'm going to be 54 in December. And I can look at all the years I spent writing closed source, and they're just dead years. There's nothing there. No fruit. And I have open source projects which are 15, 20 years old, which are still being used. And still, being and still compounding things. interest. And still compounding interest and getting actually more useful, not less useful. This is amazing. So that's the first thing is please, please, please make open source. It's the, it's the only sane way to write software in this century. And if you're still making closed source, you know, God have mercy on your soul. Number two, <laughs> if you're going to make open source, make community. Be part of community. Don't tolerate, you know, in companies we tolerate a lot of pain. We tolerate a lot of shitty management because we're paid to be there so we accept a lot of rubbish don't accept that in, op in, in open source open source is about happiness and about pleasure of working with people and if you find things aren't pleasurable and happy either fix them or leave and start your own and we've built rules we've built guides we've built how-tos which are on my blog uh, contracts c4 protocols everything you like on how to do this with lots and lots of explanation and it works so this is like how to be a happy programmer which is the best gift I can give anyone in this world, in, in, this, in this business, is you can, you can write code, it can be profitable, and you can be happy doing it, right? That's great. Well, and, and I think, I think, uh, I think you, you know, this, the, one of the best arguments for open source here is just that it's the best way to leave a legacy, and you're, you're going to leave a great legacy, uh, and I'm so glad that you came on Software Engineering Daily, and... Uh, Really, really happy uh, to have found out about uh, you and your writing, um, and uh, just thank you so much for your for your contributions. And I, uh, I hope, I hope you, I hope this podcast can contribute to the legacy that um, is being left um, around you uh, when and if uh, you you pass away. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate this very much indeed. Thank you so much, Peter.